It's always hard to be the anti-climax of the service, but sometimes it's good to be humbled, I guess. If you're a little warm, it's because it's warm in here. And, uh, you know, in the providence of God, the compressor has broken on half of the building. So this half over here is a little cooler. No, you can't change seats. <laughs> but just thankful it's not 106 degrees and you're not up on the roof. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 7, where we return to Luke's gospel. And as you get there, remember Luke is the gospel writer who is emphasizing Jesus' humanity, that Jesus is the Son of Man, and so he emphasizes that throughout his gospel, this does not mean he does not mention Jesus as king or the deity of Christ or Jesus as a servant. It's just his uh, kind of primary theme as he writes his account of Jesus's life and ministry. The last time we were in Luke, uh, Jesus had just healed the centurion's slave. Remember the uh, centurion sent some people to Jesus saying, come to my house. But before Jesus could get there, he sent more slaves and said, listen, I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and he will be healed. And Jesus said he had not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And of course, the servant was healed at that very moment. So Jesus is very popular at this time. It's still early in his ministry. Huge crowds are following him. Crowds in the multiple thousands. Uh, uh, when he feeds the 5,000 plus women and children, it could very well be there is over 10,000 people there following him. Just imagine all the people in Dodger Stadium following a person around and you'll have an idea of what it was like as he was ministering at this time. So if you have your Bible, look at Luke chapter 7 and we'll start in verse 11 as read down to verse 17. And the text says this, soon afterwards he went to a city called Nain, And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out over all Judea. And in all the surrounding district. So there's our text. And to begin with, Luke gives us some background. He paints a very vivid picture. The story is not hard to understand. But when you look at it and think about it, it it really has some great things to teach us. And I want to point out three characteristics of Jesus, which will help all of us when we encounter trials. Three characteristics that we can learn from this text and apply to our life uh, when we either suffer trial ourselves or encounter people who do. Luke begins this particular story 
with in verse 11 by saying soon afterwards, soon after what? Soon after the slave of the centurion with the great faith was healed. And then verse 11 continues, if you look there, he went to a city called Nain. Nain was a small village or town uh, in the southern region of Galilee near the border of Galilee and Samaria. The text continues in verse 11, and his disciples were going along with him accompanied by a large crowd. And as we have learned, Jesus was very popular. He was healing all manner of disease and sickness. This, of course, brought masses of people to try and get relatives, friends, um, family members healed. And he was teaching them like nobody they had ever heard before. He didn't quote the rabbis. He didn't base his authority on anyone else Except the Old Testament scriptures and his own words. And so a combination of these miracles he was doing and this incredible authoritative teaching caused huge crowds to follow him. So get that in your mind. They are thousands behind him as he approaches this city. Look at verse 12. Now as he approached the gate of the city... A dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And this situation is about as tragic as you can get in those times. There was really uh, no way that widows were supported except if they were to beg or somebody would just have mercy on them. And this woman's son, her only son, would have supported her, but now he's dead. And so not only is she grieving the loss of her son, she's grieving the loss of her income, the loss of her ability to have somebody provide for her. And Jesus and the great multitude that is following him, most likely his disciples are next to him in this great multitude. They are approaching this small town or village called Nain. Meanwhile, at the same time in the providence of God, there is a funeral procession heading out. And at that time... The rabbis teach us that when a woman had one of her family members die, she was to lead the funeral procession in front of the coffin. The reason, they said, is that Eve brought sin into the world, and so therefore women should lead in the funeral procession uh, since they brought death into the world. And so this woman, this widow, most likely is coming out of the city and The coffin and the pallbearers are behind her and behind them is this huge mass of wailing people. At that time, you know, unlike today in our culture, when there is a funeral, there's some sniffles and some crying and, you know, it's pretty placid and calm. In that culture, people were paid to wail and cry and play trumpets and flutes and dirges and people would wail and moan and crying and weeping. It was just this big, loud commotion as uh, the body was being carried out towards the gravesite. And so that's what you have coming out of the city while Jesus and his group is coming towards the city and together they're converging at the gate. And this brings us to our first point. Jesus looks with compassion on those who suffer. When the Lord saw her, verse 13 says, he felt compassion for her. Now, what is compassion? Well, this word compassion comes from the Greek word splagna. It is a uh, word that talks about your guts, you know, your heart, your liver, your lungs, your your intestines, just your innards. And uh, at that time, uh, it was thought that your your insides, your 
you know, whatever's in there was your, the seed of your emotions. And we can understand that you, people talk about having a gut feeling, or maybe you've experienced some trauma in your life or some trying circumstance and you just lose your appetite. And maybe you just have, you're sick to your stomach. You just have a gut ache. Well, because of that, um, this word was used to describe deep seated compassion when you encounter somebody who is hurting it is kind of a sympathetic compassion that kind of makes you ache inside and that is what jesus did he saw this widow instantly understood her situation and he had compassion for her it's translated in the new testament felt compassion moved with compassion or take pity And we can learn a lot about Jesus' compassion as we look at the instances this word occurs. Now, there are many texts that describe Jesus having compassion, but if we just look at the text where this particular word is used, it is only used of Jesus and his feelings towards others and appears in three of Jesus' parables where Jesus uses it to describe the kind of people all of us are to be. For instance, in Matthew 9, 36, it says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Now, in this instance, Jesus looks at this huge group of people. They've all come to follow him um, and to possibly be healed. And he sees them dispirited, downcast, and he kind of feels the same way. He's feeling this deep compassion for them. Why? Because they are like sheep without a shepherd. It's not that they didn't have any leaders. It's that the Jewish leaders at that time were, for the most part, corrupt. They were hypocritical. They were false teachers, unbelievers. And in their extreme religiosity, they were not leading the people closer to God, teaching them the word of God or helping them to be holy. Like many churches today that have pastors who are ungodly and indisciplined, undisciplined and incompetent. Their congregations become just like them, ungodly, undisciplined, unholy, lacking discernment. Sometimes you talk to people and you think to yourself, boy, what church do you go to? And you can almost be irritated at them because they don't have any spiritual discernment. They don't seem to know the word of God. And, and they do things which are blatantly sin and wrong. And, and you're thinking, I thought you were a Christian. Well, usually when that happens, it's... The fault of their shepherds. And when Jesus looks at this crowd, he sees these people dispirited and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. They had no godly leadership and he ached from within for them. In Matthew 14, 14, Jesus saw a large crowd, it says, and felt compassion on them and healed their sick. Again, this huge multitude is following. He sees them. And he sees that they all have longing eyes. They're carrying people on pallets. They're helping people with crutches. They have their relatives, their aunts, uncles, nephews, nieces, neighbors. They're all bringing, are you going to heal us too? And he heals them all. In Matthew fifteen thirty-two, it says, And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. People were so enthralled at his teaching, so amazed at the miracles he was performing that they just went without food to hear him preach. They were outside in the hot sun 
And many of them probably thought they were just going to visit him for a day, but they, once they were around him, they just were drawn to him and they didn't want to leave. And so they had this, this desire to stay and they were going without food to hear the word of God preached. Quite different from today. When a lot of times people won't even show up to church or come to an evening service or a Bible study. These people were going hungry so that they could hear God's word taught. And Jesus felt compassion on them. And so he fed them. Later on in Matthew twenty thirty four, Jesus was leaving Jericho. Two blind men called out to him and asked for mercy. The text says moved with compassion. He touched their eyes. And immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Jesus saw these poor creatures who were blind. And in that culture, when you were blind, it was just over. I mean, they didn't have braille. They didn't have ways to get around. You just wandered around in darkness, hoping that someone would guide you and feed you and take care of you. You couldn't work even if you wanted to. You were just helpless. And Jesus sees the blind men, he has compassion, and he heals them. When a leper cried out to Jesus and said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. In Mark 141, the text says, moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand. And for the first time, probably in a long time, that leper had somebody touch him and he was healed. He says, I am willing, be cleansed. And where the blind men had it bad, the lepers had it really bad. They couldn't even wander around the streets and beg. They were unclean. They had to live outside the city, sometimes in leper colonies. Or if it was a small city, they would just live among the rocks, maybe in a crude shelter, hoping that somebody would come and bring food out and leave it at a distance so they could come and pick it up. They they were just totally dependent on others' mercy. And Jesus, seeing this, just deep down within felt compassion and healed the leper concerning the parable of the slave with the unparable debt matthew 18 26 and 27 reads so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him that is the master saying have patience with me i will repay you everything and the lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him his debt And of course, in that parable, Jesus is the master and we are slaves, servants with unpayable debts. And when we come to Jesus in humility, in humbleness, asking for mercy, God is moved with compassion and he forgives us. When Jesus told the parable of the good Samaritan, after the priest and Levite, who were the holy people of society, walked by and didn't help the man, the Samaritan, who of course was the total enemy of society, came by this is what Luke ten thirty three says. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. In other words, he saw the man was in need, beat up, robbed, stripped. And he felt compassion. And he helped him. And of course, we are all to be like the Samaritan because the Samaritan is like Jesus. In the parable, the prodigal son, the son realizes his foolishness, his sin, his squandering of his possessions. He realizes he doesn't deserve his father's mercy, but he decides to return home anyways. 
Luke 15, 20 reads, so he got up and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced and kissed him. And of course, he provided for his every need in the story. Jesus is the father and we are the prodigals. You know, Jesus, when he sees people in need and he has means, he he helps them. He does what he can to help them. And when anybody is hurting and grieving in trial, Jesus reaches out to them in the Gospels. I just read the text that used the same word as our passage, but there are many others. He sees them and he's, he's aching within for them. Our text is similar to 1 Kings chapter 17. Turn there, 1 Kings 17. In 1 Kings 17, we read the story of Elijah. If you remember Elijah, there was a famine during his time. And so God directed Elijah to go to a widow's house and to stay with the widow. The problem is, is when he got there, the widow had a little bit of flour and some oil and was making her last meal to feed her and her son before they died. And Elijah shows up and says, hey, I wanted you to give me that. And amazingly, the woman does. He says, it's going to be okay. You just give me your last bit of food. And she does. And from then on, God multiplies that flour and that oil. And so they are able to survive the entire famine. The problem is, is right after that, the woman's son dies. And the widow comes to Elijah and she's quite distressed. It's like, why did God save us from the famine? Why did you come to our house? Why did you multiply the flour and the oil just to have my son die? And she was in the very same situation that this widow is in in Nain. No one to protect her, provide for her destitute without a son and elijah moved with compassion says some interesting things if you look down let's see verse 20 and he called to the lord and said oh lord my god have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom i am staying by causing her son to die and then if you look down a little bit further in verse 21, Oh Lord, my God, I pray you let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him. And he revived and Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. Look at verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you were a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is this is amazing how this story parallels the situation that we are looking at in Luke. Both Jesus and Elijah came into a town, both met their respective widows at the gate, both raised the widow's son from the dead, both gave the sons back to their mothers, both were recognized as great prophets, and both were moved by compassion. The end result is that the widows 
the widow of in Elijah's time knew that Elijah was a man of God and that the words of his mouth were truth. And you know what? As we see in a little bit, the crowd comes to that same conclusion with Jesus. Back to Luke 7. Look at the end of verse 13. Jesus approaches the grieving widow. Now keep this in your mind. Jesus has come up to the city. He's walking along. His disciples are next to him. Behind him are several thousand people, this huge mob. And as he approaches the gate, here's this other group coming up. Now, Nain, because it's a small town, uh, probably didn't have near the crowd that was following Jesus. But maybe a couple hundred uh, people are following this woman. And this casket, at that time, caskets were usually made of wicker and suspended by poles. They would lash the wicker um, casket to poles and then men would hold the poles and it was open. So here these men are carrying out, these pallbearers are carrying out this man and Jesus walks up and all the people behind the woman are wailing and weeping and they're probably looking at Jesus and saying, who's this guy and what's this crowd doing here? And he walks up to this widow who he doesn't know and says, do not weep. It's a command. Stop weeping. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? I was, as I was studying, I was thinking, I wonder what this widow was thinking. And what was she thinking? Uh, why? You know, maybe she was thinking that Jesus is going to encourage her, you know, uh, give her the hope of the resurrection, uh, you know, God's grace is sufficient, uh, um, whatever. I'm sure the people behind her who had not seen Jesus do all the miracles that he had done, the people who are grieving with her probably thought, leave her to grieve, her son has died. What is this command? Stop, cease weeping. The crowd following Jesus may have been thinking of greater things. Some may have remembered the story of both Elijah and Elisha, two great prophets who raised people from the dead. And maybe they're thinking to themselves, you know, I wonder if he could heal the widow's son. But the point we want to look at is this. Jesus felt compassion. That is the point we want to get out of here. He felt compassion on this widow who was suffering and grieving. I think the application of this is quite simple to understand. What happens in your guts when you hear of people who are suffering? As you've read the news of what's going on in New Orleans and just the surrounding area, how does that make you feel in your innards? When you're driving along the road and you see some crunched car and some body laying on the hot asphalt and the paramedics trying to help that person, how does that make you feel? When you see the lame and the blind and those who are hurting, how do you feel when people go without and sacrifice just to hear the word of God? You know, every time I go to Russia, there are men from all around Russia who travel up to 1,500 kilometers on trains, cold, one set of clothing, little food. They sacrifice two weeks of pay. They don't get paid vacation. And they come to sit in a crunched room with me. And I don't even speak their language. So that they can sit there for eight, ten hours a day and hear me teach them something about preaching through an interpreter. 
I'm telling you, man, I just, I, I, when I get there, I just want to die preaching. I just tell them, man, you just kill me off. And they do. I just go all the time. I say, yeah, just, you know, it won't hurt me that bad. Why? Because you have compassion on people like that. And that is what Jesus did. When you see those who, through no fault of their own, have trial come upon them, making it possible or difficult for them to work like the leper, like the blind man, do you feel compassion? Or when someone turns back to Christ, even though they've led a very wicked life and made a lot of bad decisions, do you feel compassion? And if you're out there thinking, well, maybe not as much as I should, well, let me give you four things you can do to help increase your compassion. One, pray. Pray that God would make you compassionate. Prayer is always the first and last line of defense. Whenever you need anything, go to God first. He's all-powerful. And he changes people. Ask him to help you have pity and to be moved within for those who are hurting and undergoing trial. Two, meditate on God's compassion in the Old Testament. You know, a lot of people look at the Old Testament. They read a few stories about God wiping out people and they think God is just a God of wrath in the Old Testament. Nothing could be further from the truth. He is a God of extreme patience and compassion. As people keep sinning and keep sinning and keep sinning and he keeps warning them and encouraging them and threatening them and doing little plagues and trying to get them to turn from their sin, just enduring compassion. They fail not. Great is his faithfulness. Third, meditate on Jesus' compassion in the New Testament, not only in the text that we read, but just in other ones. As he, he sees people and he sees them as sin-ravaged humanity. You know, in New Orleans, it, it's amazing how as soon as there is no law, there's men out there raping women and shooting people and robbing and looting. As soon as there's no no control of society and no police, there's just, just carnality. People just go crazy and they're the sin, which is already in their soul and just looking for an outlet just breaks forth like the L.A. riots. I'm telling you, if there was a huge earthquake here, it would probably happen just all up and down. Just people would just go crazy. And when you look at those people, you could despise them and say, oh, look how wicked they are. Look how mean they are. Look how terrible they are. Or you can say to yourself, you know, that would be me if I didn't know Jesus. That is what happens because men are sinners. And when Jesus looked at people like that, he felt compassion on them. Fourth, contemplate where you would be right now if God had not invaded your life with his compassion and grace. Where would you be if he had not sent that person, brought those teachers, got that mentor, exposed you to that teaching? All the things that God has done for you out of compassion and love for you, and he has done it, and he has changed your life. Listen, we are in a very pagan environment and what's going to win the world for Christ is not hatred for hatred, strife for strife, fist for fist, gun for gun, but compassion. Think about how many times God has forgiven you for the same kind of sin over and over again. That is compassion. Think of all the times he has answered your prayers and taken care of you and provided for you and been patient with you. You do that for others. 
be moved within. Jesus was. And we are to be like him. But Jesus wasn't just emotional. He just didn't feel compassionate. He did something about it. This brings us to our second point. Jesus comforts those who suffer. Look at verse 14. And notice how Jesus comforts this woman. He comes up and he touches the coffin, it says. Now, you need to realize that for Jews of that day, you just did not go near the body. The body was unclean. And if you touched an unclean body, Numbers 19.16 says, you touch the body, the grave, anything the body comes in contact with, you're unclean for seven days. And anybody who touches you is unclean for seven days. So you just never did that. So Jesus walks up to the widow the pallbearers are right behind her. Don't weep. Then walks up to the, the, the coffin, the casket. He reaches up and I'm sure all the people quit playing their flutes and quit mourning and go. <gasps> and he touches this basket with the body in it. And I'm sure all the people behind him are thinking, oh my. He just made himself unclean. I'm sure there are a few people though who are thinking, I wonder if he's going to raise the man from the dead like Elijah did. The text continues, and the bearers came to a halt, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Now, before you read on, just picture what was happening here. Just Imagine the look on people's faces between the moment he touched the casket and said those words and the moment the guy sat up. When people are looking and they're thinking, what is he doing? And other people thinking, he's going to raise him from the dead. And then the text says, the young man sat up. Look at verse 15. The dead man sat up and began to speak. J.C. Ryle comments, he speaks to a cold corpse and at once it becomes a living person. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the heart, the lungs, the brain, the senses again resume their work. End quote. G. Campbell Morgan comments, he talked to him as though he could hear, so he could hear him. He talked to him as though he was alive. He was alive. The body was dead. The man was not dead. No man is ever dead when his body lies dead. Do you understand what Morgan is saying there? I'm afraid a lot of people don't. I imagine some of you are thinking, what do you mean? He's not dead if he's dead. And you know why you have a problem understanding that? It's because you have had evolutionary lies pounded into your head, which tell you that once your body dies you die. That is a lie. People never die. Their bodies die. Their bodies cease working. Their bodies decay. People are built to live for eternity, either in heaven or hell, and they never, ever, ever die. And so what you need to realize is that when Jesus comes to this man, he's not speaking to his body. He is speaking to the young man who at that time was in Abraham's bosom. And he says to that young man, arise. And yes, he repaired the young man's body. But that body was not the young man. 
Look over at Luke 8, 49. We're going to be here in a couple of years. Look at Luke 8, 49, and I just want to show you a couple texts which teach this. Purge our minds from evolutionary nonsense that says when our bodies die, we die. Look at Luke 8, 49 and following. Jesus has just healed the woman with a hemorrhage, and then Luke writes, and while he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Then we have this in verse 50. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, do not be afraid any longer, only believe and she will be made well. And when he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now, they were all Weeping and lamenting for her, but he said the same exact thing. Stop weeping. She has not died, but is asleep. She's still living. Oh yeah, she's asleep to this world, to this reality, but she's not dead. Verse 53, and they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and calling, saying, child, arise. Jesus spoke not to the body. He spoke, speaks through the body to paradise where that child's spirit lives and calls that child back from the place of paradise back to her body, which he miraculously heals and repairs. Notice what the text says, verse 55, and her spirit returned, returned where? To her body. And she got up immediately and gave orders for something to be given her to eat. In John eleven forty three, we see the same thing. Jesus is standing before the rotting, stinking body of Lazarus. And he says, not to Lazarus's body, but to Lazarus himself, who still lives apart from his body, and says, Lazarus, arise. And the body is repaired. Lazarus's spirit is reunited with his body. And out he comes. Whole. And repaired. Yoda had it right. We are not this crude matter. (laughs) The real us is spirit and eternal and lives on. And when Jesus spoke to the dead men in the coffin, he sat up. And I'm sure all the pallbearers at that one time were thinking, you know, about ready to drop the thing. I could just hear one of them saying, set it on the ground. He's alive. And his mother thinking, my son, he's alive. Jesus reaches down, grabs the man's hand, helps him out of the coffin. And I'm sure while the mother's eyes are just flowing with tears, Jesus gives him back to his mother. And you know what you need to learn from this? Is that Jesus didn't just have compassion. He did something about it. He did something about it. 
He didn't just feel sorry for her. He did something about it. If you look at all those texts I read earlier, in every text, he did something about it. God doesn't want you to be compassionate with the things you don't have. He wants you to be compassionate with the things you do have. I think that one of the hardest things Christians struggle with is how in the world do I go about being compassionate? There's so many con men, so many unfaithful people, so many people who are hurting because they want to hurt. I mean, they've chosen to hurt. And, you know, I mean, how do I, how do I sort through all of this? Well, let me just give you some practical ways you can show compassion. Seven of them. One, pay your taxes. You didn't think that was coming, did you? Listen, we live in a welfare state. In the Old Testament times, when you were a farmer, you left the corners of your field. You paid tithes. You let people eat whatever they wanted to eat as they walked through your orchards or vineyards or fields. It was a part of being kind to the poor. Every seven years, all debts were forgiven. That was their welfare system. We have a different one. We pay taxes, Social Security. And yes, there are abuses, no doubt. People getting paid too much, people who are lying, people who are using the system, who shouldn't be receiving any funds but do. But listen, you pay your taxes, you're building roads, you're building schools, you're paying policemen and firemen and giving the poor and medical care for those who can't afford it and a million other things. You are showing compassion. And so don't cheat on your taxes. I'm surprised at how many people say, oh, yeah, I cheated on my taxes. That is unchristian and it's uncompassionate. It's sin and it's to rob those in need. Secondly, give faithfully to the church. You know, Dave talked about we have this general fund and that general fund just pays for things like broken air conditioners. Um, it pays for just all kinds of buildings and paper needs and whatever we have a missions fund for missions and benevolent fund and all of these things that you give to any one of them they they meet needs they show compassion it's a it's a tangible way of showing compassion give your time to serve thirdly in in places that are designed to show compassion places like hope again or or avenues pregnancy center which we support and these places are are designed to have compassion on people who are suffering trial you know, maybe you're retired. Maybe you have a job that has a flexible schedule and you don't have something to do someday. Why don't you just go down there and volunteer and see what it's like? You may discover that you are really blessed. Fourth, keep your eye out for those in the body of Christ who have needs and try to meet them secretly. This is so fun. You're out there talking and you, you hear that single mom, that poor college student, that high school student with unbelieving parents who don't want to pay for the way to camp or, you know, that senior citizen who needs their leaves raked or whatever. And you can be moved with compassion and think, I'm going to meet that need. And no one will know but God. And only he will get the glory. Five, pray for those who are hurting, grieving, or in need. Listen, we have a prayer list on the foyer. If you didn't know this, if you want something to pray about, pick up a prayer sheet. Call the office. Get a prayer sheet. Pray for the prayer needs of the church. Go to the Wednesday night 7 p.m. prayer meeting. 
Pray for people. When you're at the table, try and include several people every day who are hurting, people who are in distress in your discipleship group, whatever. Pray for people. Six, use your spiritual gifts and serve others. If you're a believer, you have spiritual gifts, so use them. You know, whatever it is, whatever your talent is, whatever your gift is, give it, use it. If you don't know what it is, start serving. You'll find out. Then try to excel at it and be excellent at it and then use it to bless others. Seven, be there for people in a time of trial. And this just takes very little resources, but a little bit of effort. Go visit somebody in the hospital. You make it your ministry. If you want to, they'll send you all the updates of all the people who are sick and you can go visit them. If you don't know how to do that, you call John Charlton or you contact one of the pastors or elders. They'll take you along, give you a few pointers. Get the notion out of your head that people in the hospital need to be visited by the minister, which means me. Listen, if you're a Christian, you're commanded to be a minister. All Christians are commanded to be ministers. All Christians are to visit the sick and the widows and those in the hospital. Every single believer. How are you doing? I can't visit everybody, but I'm telling you, if everybody here takes it, makes it their responsibility, it'll be no problem. I'll probably have to put a sign. No more visitors. Someone said the world hungers for compassion or sympathy. Often we can do nothing but sympathize, suffer with those distressed. But oh, how it helps. And it does. It helps. I mean, you don't have any, you can't do anything. I mean, so the person's dying of cancer. What do you do? You show up. That in itself is a comfort. You speak words of encouragement, of hope, of comfort, of better things to come. That is a good, you pray for them. That is a comfort. Just this week, I went and talked to Bernie Bogtasos, who's in the hospital. He's on dialysis 11 hours a day. Had his right leg amputated below the knee because he wasn't having good circulation. And on Friday, he took off his left. I said, Bernie, how you doing? I mean, how you doing with all this? You know, having your legs amputated. You know what he said? I have faith in my God. I read Philippians. It tells me to pray to God and his peace, which surpasses all understanding, guards my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I believe that. They can cut all my limbs off. I am not going to lose Jesus. So, I just, I mean, I was so glad I went. He's just a pillar. Here the guy is. A dialysis, 11 hours a day. I really have a hard time getting to church, he says. <laughs> so by winter, he says, they may have prosthesis for me. And he says, I can, you know, learn to use them and walk again and come back to church. Uh, who ministered to who? And this is what you're missing if you don't go. This is the blessing you are missing thinking you're going to oh well i'd rather watch tv you steal a great moment from your own soul so we see in the jesus has compassion on the widow he did something about it and brings us to our last point jesus had power to comfort and that power should be proclaimed by you 
you know, Jesus is in the story here. He does this incredible deed. And why is he doing this? Well, I think Luke includes this story and the centurion and a couple previous because of what's going to come in our next time we're here. When the disciples of John come to Jesus and they're not sure John's in prison, things aren't going real well. He's not sure if Jesus is the Messiah or not. He's starting to waver. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and they ask, John wants to know, are you the expected one? Or should we look for somebody after you? I mean, you going to overthrow Rome or not? And so Luke includes these stories so that Jesus' answer, if you look in Luke 7.22, that Jesus answers and says, Go report to John which you have heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense of me. So Luke is certainly building a case for the text we're going to look at next time. But beyond this, the point you need to realize is that Jesus's work here made the crowds, both the mourners and the followers, respond in a certain way. Actually, four ways. Look at verse 16. Fear gripped them all. This is a good response. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't fear God, you won't obey him. Fear is the primary motivating factor in obedience. Yes, you need to love God, but you need to have a reverence, a fear of him. He is a terrible, awesome God, a consuming fire. And you should fear him. And these people are gripped, seized with fear. I mean, think about it. How would you feel, you know, you're at a funeral and, you know, you're there in forest lawn in the middle of the green grass. You know, they've got, you know, the fake grass covering up the mound of dirt. You've got this open casket. People are, you know, paying their last respects before they lower the thing in the ground. And all of a sudden, somebody you don't know wanders up with a huge group of people following him and says, stop weeping leans over in the casket and says, arise. And the guy sits up. Would that scare you? Why would it scare you? Because you know, that stuff doesn't happen very often. <laughs> That's not something normal. Well, the reason it's terrifying is because when you see power like that is the very power of God and it is right in your face and it's terrifying. In Exodus 14, 31, God has just parted the Red Sea. You remember, he, you know, Moses lifted up the rod, the sea parted, the whole people escaped from the army. They get to the other side, and now the army's chasing them into the sea, and now they're scared again. And then the sea collapses on them, and their dead bodies wash up on the shore, and the Israelites are there. Whoa. And Exodus 14.31 says, When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So our first response should be fear, reverence, wonder, as we come to stories like this in the Bible, as we see God transform people's lives and make them into new creatures. Secondly, Verse 16, and they began glorifying God. And notice how they glorified God. They glorified God by saying, a great prophet has risen among us. Surely they made the connection between both Elijah and Elisha, the two great prophets of Israel who raised people from the dead. They figured it out. Jesus was a great prophet. They had come to the same conclusion that widow did in 1 Kings 17. Third, the people realized something else. Look at the end of verse 16. God has visited his people. 
Now, I don't think those people believed Jesus was God incarnate. I mean, then they probably would all fell down backwards. But I think they realized that God who had been silent for many, many years in Israel, who had not healed and done miracles and raised people from the dead, was now again visiting his people through this man named Jesus. And when you look at it, Elijah and Elijah didn't come close to doing the kind and magnitude of miracles that Jesus did. He healed every kind of disease, every sickness, had power over Satan and demons and nature and spoke things into existence out of nothing, turned water into wine, multiplied loaves. I mean, he did so many things, calmed the sea. And when you read of these things in the Bible, what are you supposed to do? Wow, that's incredible. And then be frozen over at the mouth like the Arctic River? The fourth effect, verse 17, this report concerning him went out over all Judea and in all the surrounding district. What does that tell you? It tells you this. These people went and told other people. And that's what you are to do. And that's what I am to do. Tell other people about the works of God in this book, about the work of God in your life and about the work of God in other people's lives. Listen, If my wife finds out that I knew someone was pregnant or had a baby and I didn't tell her, I get in trouble. She finds out that somebody's pregnant and I say, oh yeah, I knew that. You knew that? Now, what do you think would happen if, you know, I'm doing a funeral or a forest lawn Somebody rises from the dead and I never get around to telling my wife. She has to read it in the newspaper. I mean, think of how absurd that would be to have something so incredible and so great happen. And then, oh, that I forgot. It's ridiculous. And it's equally ridiculous that we have a God who has recorded his miracles and deeds in the pages of scripture, has changed your life, has changed other people's lives, and you go out in the world and you don't say anything. It is a shame. It is a shame. It is to be ashamed of the Lord. J.C. Ryle says, quote, Let us see in this mighty miracle a living emblem of Christ's power to bring life to those who are dead in their sins. Jesus, in Jesus Christ is life. He brings to life whomever he chooses. He can raise to new life souls who now seem dead in worldliness and sin. Let us never despair of any soul. The one who met the funeral at the gates of Nain may meet our unconverted friends and say with mighty power, young man, I say to you, get up. For with Christ, nothing is impossible, end quote. And so it is. You're out there, you know, having your lunch break or whatever with one of your coworkers. The topic of religion comes up and you think to yourself, you know, I'm just going to tell this guy the gospel. And all of a sudden, God with mighty power just destroys the guy. He weeps. He confesses his sins. And right there over the tacos, (laughs) he gives his life to Christ and he's for saved forevermore. 
That's what you need to do with this story and others like it with what you know in your life and other people's life. We have a God of compassion and he acts towards those who are humble and repentant and seek him. So tell other people about Jesus, his compassion and his power. Isaac Watts, who wrote at least one hymn for every one of the Psalms, wrote this for Psalm 103. This is just a portion of it. The pity of the Lord to those that fear his name is such as tender parents feel. He knows our feeble frame. He knows we are but dust, scattered with every breath. His anger, like a rising wind, can send us swift to death. Our days are as the grass. Or like the morning flower, if one sharp blast sweep over the field, it withers in an hour. But thy compassions, Lord, to endless years endure, and children's children ever find thy words of promise sure. And God's promises, his compassions fail not, and they are new every morning. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would help us to respond to this text correctly, that we would seek to be people of compassion, that we would seek to act on the compassion that you give us. And Father, that we would tell the world of the kind of God that you are, a God who is compassionate towards sinners, who is able to save sinners and change them and give them new hearts, heal up old wounds. And in the future, glorify them and give them an eternal hope. Father, may all of us leave here fired up and ready to live according to your word, to be a church of compassion so that we might be a light in this dark place. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.